With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? This episode features a recording of a panel discussion from the Reducitarian Summit held in New York City in May 2017. The goal of the summit was to spark solution-driven conversations that can help individuals and communities decrease meat consumption. I had the pleasure of moderating the opening panel of the summit focused on providing an overview of the broken food system. In this recording, you'll hear some introductory remarks from me, followed by presentations from six different experts for about five minutes each, covering a wide range of impacts of industrial animal agriculture, from the environment to worker treatment, animal rights, public health, antibiotics, and global food security. Even if you don't want to listen to the brief individual presentations on various issues, I highly recommend the Q&A part of the panel. It begins around the 45-minute mark of this episode and includes questions posed by myself and the audience. So I'm Nil Zacharias. I'm the co-founder of a company called One Green Planet. We're a mission-driven media company. You can check out our work at uh, onegreenplanet.org. And, you know, I wish I could start today by saying that you should be excited for this panel. Really? I wish I could ask you all, are you pumped? Are you excited about what I'm going to bring to you today? But to be honest, I can't really do that. You know, the harsh truth is, um, I'm sorry. I, I don't even want to do this. I, I feel like <sighs> there's no easy way to put this. You know, the, I have terrible news to deliver to you. The news is that we are in serious trouble. Yep. And when I say we, I mean we as a species, we're in serious trouble. We're in trouble because we are clueless when it comes to meeting one of our most fundamental human needs. We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea what to eat and how to produce food. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You have the answers. You have it figured out. And that's cool. I get it. But the reality is our food system is broken. Let me just present some facts to you. So we are 7.3 billion people on the planet today. We're going to be 9.7 billion by the year 2050. Animal protein is already in high demand in the developed world, and because of rising incomes, it's growing rapidly in the developing world. China consumes a quarter of the world's meat today. That's double the US consumption. And India is expected to be number two behind China by the year 2050. So to keep up with this rising demand, we're going to have to double our meat production in the next 30 years. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that the system which we depend on to produce this meat is industrial animal agriculture. 
And that industry is a complete disaster. And that's what we're talking about today, at least in this panel. It's a mess. Industrial animal agriculture is at the heart of our environmental crisis. This one industry uses up more than half of the world's arable land, a majority of our fresh water, and drives more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector. So that's more greenhouse gases than all the trucks, buses, trains, planes, boats, ships, Hummers, and Harleys on the planet. That's a lot. But I do have good news. Before I get to that, let me tell you it gets worse. It gets worse because animal agriculture is also driving deforestation, soil degradation, air and water pollution, and species extinction. But wait, there's more. And this is when it turns into a dystopian infomercial. Uh, but let me get serious for a second here. This is the really sad part. Our food system is terrible at feeding the world. Industrial animal agriculture is contributing to a global health crisis today, and yet one out of nine people across the world go to bed hungry every night. So we're terrible at even feeding ourselves. But now I get to the good news. The good news I have is at least we have bacon. <laughs> Glad at least two of you found that funny. <laughs> uh, no, the good news is that we're all here because we want to be part of the solution, and that's the starting point. And we have an amazing group of speakers here today to dive deeper into the problems with our broken food system so we can start to identify some solutions. Um, up first, we have Darius Teeter from Oxfam. Darius has worked on poverty and economic development for 25 years in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. At Oxfam America, he is focused on the terrible paradox that small farmers are crucial, sustainable contributors to our food system, but also represent majority of the food insecure people living in poverty. Give it up for Darius. So thanks very much. Um, Neil mentioned a few words about Oxfam. We're not traditionally known for taking a stance on meat consumption, and that's something that I personally am hoping to change, which is one of the reasons I'm here, to learn about how to bring a massive organization working in 90 countries on a personal journey that I started a few years ago. So that's why I'm here. But I also want to tell you a little bit about a campaign that we're doing called Lives on the Line. It's focused on how the poultry industry treats its workers. Notice I didn't say how it treats its chickens, which is where I want to go next. But, so why do we care about the poultry industry? There's some amazing statistics that I didn't know until we started doing our research in 2014. First of all, the incredible amount of poultry that is produced and the rapid pace at which that has grown. So we're talking 50 billion pounds of poultry produced a year of which chickens alone count for 8.5 billion chickens grown in America every year. Something else you might want to think about in this industry is that it's highly concentrated. Four companies actually control 60% of the market. Tyson, Pilgrims, Purdue, and Sanderson Farms. And within there, there's something like 31 individual brands that people associate on their shelves. So why is that interesting? Well, as a campaigner 
and Oxfam is at its heart a campaigning organization. That means you don't actually need that many targets. If you can take one of those big four and move them in the right direction, you can actually create a norm. First of all, you can have quite substantive change just because of that one company's change in policies. But secondly, you create actually pressure in the sector on the other big players. And this has been a pick-off a pick strategy that Oxfam and its allies have been using for years in many, many industries. So why poultry workers? Another statistic that kind of blew my mind is that poultry workers account for 250,000 jobs in the United States. That's enormous. We keep talking about coal mining jobs. That's four times more jobs than there are in all the coal mines in America. Who are these workers? Typically economically desperate, socially isolated populations. They're migrants, they're refugees, they're people of color, they're women. And they're in extremely dangerous working conditions. And they live in a climate of fear and intimidation because of who they are. If they complain, if they speak out, they're just replaced. Some very simple statistics about them. Incredibly willful compensation. A poultry worker does not earn enough money to bring a family of three above the American poverty line. They're on food stamps. They're getting subsidized school lunches. They're in Head Start programs. Meanwhile, Pilgrim CEO salary rose almost 300% in four years, which is kind of amazing. The other thing that's really bad is the conditions in the working in these, in these plants. I don't know if anybody can read this, but it's 10 times more likely to suffer repetitive stress industry in the poultry industry than in any other industry on, based on the averages. You're seven times more likely to suffer from carpal tunnel syndrome. You're five times more likely to have occupational illness and this has a lot to do with the antibiotics that are used in this sector. So in summary, it's an industry that's cruel to animals and cruel to workers. So it's kind of a lose-lose industry designed to deliver cheap, unhealthy food to our tables. Thank you, Darius. Um, that was great. I, dark, dark, but great. <laughs> um, next up, we have Ashley Sheffer Yildiz from the Rainforest Action Network. She's a senior responsible food campaigner there where she directs the Conflict Palm Oil Campaign's national organizing program and advocates for a food system that respects animals, human health, and the environment. All right. So again, my name is Ashley, and I'm the Senior Responsible Food Campaigner at Rainforest Action Network. And um, it's a great honor to be here. I've been an animal rights activist since I was pretty much born. Had um, every night a battle with my parents because I made the connection um, that the animals that I loved were the food on my plate. And I've been donating money to all these animal rights organizations, um, sending in my $5 weekly allowance since I was four. So um, needless to say, this has been a lifelong journey for me. And um, I've been at Rainforest Action Network almost eight years, and for the last four, I've been on a personal mission to get the organization to be taking on animal agriculture because I think it's absolutely irresponsible um, for us to not be doing that work. So um, I, again, I have five minutes to go over the worst environmental impacts of industrial animal ag, which is essentially impossible, so I'm gonna keep this very high level. Um, and the four that I'm going to cover today are 
Um, and I feel like Nil kind of gave half of my presentation, but um, deforestation, climate change, biodiversity loss, and water scarcity and pollution, those are, I would say, um, the most severe impacts of raising animals for food. So food production is a leading cause of deforestation globally. Um, animal agriculture is a major driver. Some say it's the leading driver. And um, species-rich habitats, which are mostly found in tropical rainforests across the globe, are being converted to pasture and feed crops at lightning speed to meet the growing appetite for meat around the world. And animals in factory farms are fed primarily soy and corn, which are grown in vast monocultures, replacing forests with diversity dead zones. Forest conversion to soy plantations for feed also releases a huge amount of sequestered tree and soil carbon. So it's not only um, a huge problem for the species living in these forests, but also for climate change, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, in terms of biodiversity loss, this incredible and very disturbing aerial photo shows the eyesore that is this feedlot in Dalhart, Texas. And if you can tell all those minuscule black specks at the top in the squares, those are all cows. And this image really shows the scale of the impact. Looking at this image, it's no surprise that food production is a leading cause of biodiversity loss. And as a matter of fact, 30% of global biodiversity loss is linked to livestock production. Many of the places that are expecting to see the greatest shift in land use from forest to livestock are actually in the 15 quote-unquote mega-diverse countries, which harbor the largest amount of species. And this is according to a recent study in Science Magazine. And raising livestock also has other, perhaps, um, less obvious, but equally insidious impacts on our food system. Uh, the increasing demand for commodity crops has helped create the system of monocrops and pesticides that's killing off pollinators and other wildlife in the U.S. In terms of climate change, um, industrial, the industrial food system is responsible for a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. And raising animals for food is the single largest source of these food sector emissions. So it's a huge percent. And as Neil said, it's about 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And it's pretty mind-boggling to think that this is greater than the entire transportation sector. Uh, these greenhouse gases are largely from converting tropical forests to feed crops, so land use changes, um, from methane and from energy use. In terms of water scarcity and pollution, this is also an incredibly resource-intensive industry. Animal agriculture is the single most water-consuming industry in the world, and agriculture in general accounts for about 92% of the freshwater footprint of humanity. And in terms of California, the state um, where I'm from, it's pretty amazing to think about the fact that factory-farmed cows account for about half, half of our state's water consumption. And yet when we're in these drought crises, all we're hearing about is the need for um, consumer action, like 
low flow toilets and drinking less water at restaurants. And it's just incredibly ironic um, given that the water use for industrial scale beef dwarfs what consumers could save in a million years. So let's talk about the real issues in terms of water consumption. In terms of water pollution, uh, CAFOs cause the majority of nitrogen and phosphorus pollution. And according to the EPA, this is one of America's most widespread, costly, and challenging environmental problems. Um, in terms of who's responsible, these four meat giants are driving the explosion of factory farming in the US and around the world. And they're responsible for much of the environmental harm. We must challenge the production status quo, and we also must work together to reduce consumption of meat and dairy. And I think challenging production and consumption are both equally as important in our efforts to mitigate the negative impacts of environmental animal agriculture on human and planetary health. And in conclusion, uh, to maintain a safe planet for current and future generations, we need to move away from animal proteins and animal-based products and to plants because the future is absolutely plant-based. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ashley. Next up, we have Sharon Nunes, who's going to talk about animal rights and animal welfare impact. She's the co-founder and president of Animal Equality, a leading international animal rights organization. They, have, um, they work in eight countries and offices in nine cities, a total of 55 employees, and have been considered one of the most effective animal rights organizations in the world three years in a row by animal charity evaluators. Welcome, Sharon. event. I see so many friends and people I really love in the crowd and I think this is just a, such a wonderful opportunity to bring together people from different social movements including the animal protection movement to see how we can build bridges and create allies in other movements. So I want to give it up for the organizers. The question is not can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? This quote from philosopher Jeremy Bentham was made 200 years ago, but is as relevant as ever when we think about our relation to other animals. Animals are able to suffer, there is no doubt. They have the capacity to feel. They are conscious. As recently deceased philosopher Tom Regan said, they are subjects of a life. Farm animals experience pain as intensely as we do. And just like us, they want to live a life free from harm. But living in pain is the daily experience for 56 billion farmed animals and over 3 trillion fish that are raised and killed for food around the world. Intelligent and curious hens are kept in cages so small they can't even move, they can't even turn around. 
and chickens are bred to grow so fast, they can't bear the weight of their own body, and they suffer from lameness and other injuries. Playful newborn piglets are mutilated a few days after they're born. Their teeth are clipped, their tails are docked, and their testicles are ripped out without anesthesia. Fish, who contrary to popular belief, have long-term memories and show complex behaviors, are bred in cramped and filthy fish farms. They suffer from infections and injuries. And dairy cows, who just like us, form strong emotional bonds with their calves, are separated from them days from birth, and they suffer intensely. And though there are a lot of excellent initiatives to reform the conditions of animals and farms, to end the worst forms of cruelty, and to move away from factory farming, the truth is we cannot end factory farming without significantly reducing our dependence on animal products. I myself have visited over 50 factory farms throughout my life, and I can tell you firsthand they are places from out of a nightmare. I remember in a pig farm seeing a mother pig in a cage the size of her own body. She couldn't even turn around. She gave birth to a baby piglet, and the baby piglet fell into a, some feces that were just under her. She could do nothing to help him. I remember in a chicken farm, the air was so full of ammonia, I had to cover my nose because I, I simply couldn't breathe. And in a hen farm, I remember I turned on my light and I couldn't see the end to the rows and rows of cages where four to five hens were stacked in each single cage. I could hardly spend a few hours there. I, I really have a very difficult time imagining what it is to spend months or even years in these terrible places. And every time I visit a factory farm, I ask myself, is this really necessary? It isn't. We can lead perfectly healthy lives without eating animals. I am convinced that in the next decades, we will see an end to factory farming. I see it every day. The animal protection movement is growing daily, and other social movements are joining us. Greenpeace, for example, just recently started promoting Meatless Mondays. Companies, institutions, and governments around the world are beginning to take animal welfare seriously. Plant-based alternatives are popping up everywhere. And the amount of people who are reducing their meat consumption, going vegetarian or vegan, is increasing day by day. But if, as philosopher Tom Regan said, if animals are subjects of a life, I think we should ask ourselves, are humans entitled to kill them at all? Thank you very much. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, up next, we have Marin McKenna, who's going to talk about the food safety issues involved with uh, factory farming. She's a journalist focused on public health and global health and food policy. Her new book, Big Chicken, will be published in September 2017 by National Geographic Books. She's a senior fellow at the Shuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. And her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore?, has been viewed over 1.4 million times, which I'm sure is this talk as well. 
Hello. So I was so thrilled to be asked to join this panel, this view of dystopia, um, because an exploration of whether it's possible to reduce meat consumption is really important to me because it dovetails with something I have been obsessed with for the past couple of years, which is the question of why do we have so much meat in the first place? I mean, how is it that we got ourselves into a situation in which the average American eats every year 91 pounds of chicken, 57 pounds of beef, 51 pounds of pork, 17 pounds of turkey, as you heard, 275 pounds per person per year. That's three quarters of a pound for every one of the 326 million Americans. And the obvious answer is that we eat that much meat because we can, because it's available and because it's affordable. But what I kept asking is, what made it possible for us to have this inexhaustible supply of inexpensive protein? And if you asked an agricultural scientist, the answers you might hear are, we have so much meat because of highly tuned genetics, or we have so much meat because of precision nutrition, or because we have carefully designed housing or feedlots in order to be able to produce animals efficiently. And all of those answers are true, sort of. But what is really responsible for our bottomless supply of cheap meat is antibiotics. Most of the animals raised for meat on this planet receive antibiotics on most of the days of their lives. And this is a practice that dates back to the 1950s. It's completely embedded in the way that we raise meat animals now. We started giving meat animals antibiotics because the drugs increased the speed at which they put on weight. So animals could be moved through the process of production faster. And then agriculture began giving antibiotics in larger doses to protect animals from diseases caused by being packed together in barns or feedlots. So antibiotics made meat fast to produce, and they reduced the risk that something would go wrong in that rush to do things quickly. By 2015, just in the United States, meat animals were receiving 34 million pounds of antibiotics a year. Those are federal statistics. That's four times what humans take in the United States. And the US isn't even the top user in the world, though we are the country that essentially invented industrial-scale farming. But we are in the top five. China's first, and Brazil, India, and Germany are all hanging out with us. So the misuse of antibiotics would be bad enough if all it did was cause the rise of cheap meat and industrial-scale meat production. But farm antibiotic use also contributes to the rise of antibiotic resistance. The current estimate is that 700,000 people a year die of drug-resistant infections. And that could rise to 10 million by the year 2050, not very far from now, if nothing is done. Resistant bacteria spread off farms in animals, in manure, in groundwater, in dust. They are a form of environmental pollution, and they're an occupational hazard. They threaten farm workers and their families. And beyond the environs of farms, you can draw clear and provable lines of evidence 
from misuse of antibiotics in meat production to outbreaks of drug-resistant foodborne illness and to the spread of resistant bacteria beyond farms to people who have no contact with farming at all. So the call that you are all here because you heard, the call to have people try to eat less meat, to consume fewer animal products, that really resonates with me because it would reduce the demand pressure on animal agriculture to pump meat out so quickly. That means less need for speed. That means less crowding in barns and feedlots. And that means the impulse to use antibiotics will be less. And the fewer antibiotics we use, the more we can slow down the advance of resistance, one of the prime threats to human health around the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next, we're going to dive deeper into um, the problem of how this food system we have is terrible at uh, feeding the world. We have Don Moncrief, who is the founder and executive director of A Well-Fed World, which is a food justice, hunger relief, and animal protection organization. A Well-Fed World partners, and partners with and financially strengthens feeding, farming, and animal rescue groups working in their own communities and representing more than 50 countries. Give it up for Don. Again, I'm Dawn Moncrief with A Well-Fed World. And we all know the, the top three reasons for, personal reasons for meat consumption, people who are reducing and eliminating meat consumption and the use of animals for food more generally for dairy and eggs. But we're also increasingly seeing researchers and in global institutions, including the United Nations, who are advocating a shift towards plant-based diets out of concern for global hunger, and food security more generally. And so that's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to start with the most common reason. And that's the ways in which using animals for food is inefficient. We know that animals being used for food are inefficient, but it's because they eat much more food than they produce. So just put really plainly, animals eat much more food than they produce. And the consequences of this impact are massive on a global scale. With the livestock consuming so much, we have, on a global scale, 36%. So more than a third of global crops are being used for feed. And as we heard before, about two-thirds, sometimes there's even greater numbers than that, of uh, agricultural land being used for animals. According to researchers, 4 billion people, 4 billion more people could be fed if we were to stop diverting crops away from uh, diverting crops to livestock feed, and also to biofuels. And it's interesting, there's an interesting note about biofuels, is that you'll see some actual um, negative publicity around them um, because they're, they're competing with food sources. So if you're following this, which probably a lot of you are, there's some negative publicity to the point that a UN top official actually called biofuels a crime against humanity because it's competing. And what that does is the increased demand relative to supply puts upward pressure on prices. So it is very real. It's not that, well, we just eat less meat and so then it's automatically available. So it's not naive. It actually does put upward pressure on food prices. And so when we think about that, if you see the chart, you see that biofuels only account for about 5%. So why is there a focus on biofuels when more than a third of the crops 
are being used for livestock. So if we reduce our meat consumption on a global level, we can much more immediately have a much larger impact. And so that's why you've got to ask yourself, like, why are we l focusing on biofuels and, and other things that we focus on without focusing more on livestock? I want to make a point, um, I'm going to make a point a couple times about different numbers. So feed conversion ratios are one way to make the inefficiency of meat more tangible. And I'm not going to bog you down with numbers because I know that kind of makes people's eyes glaze over a little bit. But um, what these feed conversion ratios refer to is the, how many pounds. So how many pounds of crops are being used to produce a pound of meat? That's what they're supposed to refer to. But the inefficiency is downplayed by industry. So you see there's three different standards here. So you've got an industry underestimating, downplaying the inefficiencies, and then the butcher rate, and then a research rate. So when, example, like if 10 pounds of crops are being used for one pound of weight gain, that's what the industry might tell you, that weight gain is not meat. So by the time you take out the blood and the bones and all the non-edible parts of a live animal, you actually have like two to three times more inefficiency by the time you get it to the consumer. So the more accurate number is going to be, uh, the, the research accuracy is going to be the edible weight. And there's actually new research doing different types of calculations, which makes um, it much more inefficient. But that's a whole other presentation, so I'm not going to get into that. But um, the simple point to note is that the bigger the animal, the more inefficient uh, they are in terms of crop use. And of course, the, oh my goodness, the poultry industry loves that. Um, so, uh, because they are like, oh, it's about two to one. So, what about food waste? So, food waste, if we flip the script a little bit on this, um, it's getting a lot of attention these days also, but consider that while food waste is derided as a travesty, losing half our crops chicken feed is actually celebrated as efficiency. So, if we were to examine this and step back, we could actually see that meat could be considered a form of food waste. I've got to go really fast here. So um, we already talked about the climate, but climate is actually also a multiplier of hunger risk. So that's why it's, it's really important. It's a leading um, uh, contributor. Uh, meat is a leading contributor, as we already discussed, but climate is also a multiplier of hunger. And it's not just um, the natural disasters that are intensified by climate, but it's also the incremental temperature and water changes. So it's going to happen whether countries get hit by, by the natural disasters or not. And I just also really quickly want to um, talk about the ways in which these numbers are, are conservative. So when you hear methane, if you, the numbers you usually see are that it's 20 to 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. But those numbers are conservative. That's over a 100-year time span. If you use a 20-year time span, because we don't have 100 years, that actually more than triples. The impact of methane more than triples. And so what that means is that the livestock industry is actually much more um, responsible for greenhouse gas and climate impact than we, we normally think of it. And, um, but on the upside, you know, our, our reductions are more, are more uh, meaningful. I'm almost done here. Okay, and um, grazing. I want to make a point about grazing. So it's often um, framed in terms of being more eco-friendly. And while grazing does decrease uh, the amount of crop use in terms of climate impact, it's actually worse. So let me just repeat that. It reduces crop use because they're eating grass, but in terms of climate impact, it's worse. Grass-fed cows and other ruminant animals have three to four times more methane, and we just talked about how important methane is and how powerful it is. And then grazing cattle is also a major contributor of deforestation, as, as we were mentioned earlier, so that with animal feed. 
And one of the reasons that's also important is because we're losing trees. Without trees, we don't have the photosynthesis. So we're losing photosynthetic uh, capabilities, and that's what actually can pull the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. We could be proactive, but instead we're cutting it down. So just in conclusion, um, one of the, the things that we're doing with the well-fed world is we're promoting plant-based foods, not just for hunger, but then we're also looking for um, overconsumption and to, to promote plant-based foods and shifting towards plant-based foods for those who have the choice to do so, but then also making them more accessible for those who don't. And I had to rush through this. Um, super quick on the, on the climate thing also, the, that 20 to, to 50 years, so th those numbers that you hear about the transportation, that is actually also conservative. So those 14.5%, that 18.5%, those are based on those 100 years time frame. If those of you familiar with the 51%, in part that's because of the 20 uh, year time frame shift. So there's a lot more to that than that, but those massive numbers are actually conservative. I'm sorry for going over. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dawn. Uh, so Becky Ramsing is the last speaker on this panel before we get into Q&A. She has uh, the important task of answering the question, but isn't meat and dairy and animal products good for our health? And what is the health impact of producing animal products at a massive global scale? Becky is a senior program officer at the John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future primarily responsible for managing the center's technical advisory role with the Meatless Mondays, Monday campaign. She has worked in the nutrition and public health field for over 25 years in the US and internationally, helping individuals and organizations make healthy, healthful life, lifestyle choices that are evidence-based, relevant, and sustainable. Thank you, Becky. Thanks for being here. It's just um, it's great following this line of speakers. So I hope I can add something um, to this. So I'm going to talk about why shifting toward plant-based diets are also is also a public health priority. Um, animal, produ animal production, in par particular, has a large environmental impact, um, but the health impacts of meat are also um, very significant. Scientific research provides compelling evidence to suggest that consuming a diet lower in animal products and higher in plant-based plant foods and vegetables um, and dietary fiber promotes health and prevents chronic diseases. Food supplies, unfortunately, food supply, incentives, marketing um, also in this current climate make low-quality food easier to access, prepare, and consume. So um, increased consumption of red meat and bread and processed meats is associated with an increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, and some cancers, such as diverticulitis. This uh, slide here is from a recent Journal of the American Medical Association study looking at two prospective cohort studies, and it demonstrated an increase in all-cause mortality with an increasing number of red meat servings per day. Another study that's not on this slide demonstrated that a small shift replacing only 3% of calories of animal protein, particularly processed red meats, with plant protein reduce all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and cancer deaths. So only small shifts can actually make a difference with our health. 
Um, research suggests that diets with more vegetables, fruits, and less meats can also reduce the, tip, the risk of type 2 diabetes and other diseases, and especially when the substitutions are with legumes, um, beans and legumes. This study by Tillman and Clark um, demonstrated, looked at diets globally, and um, it, it was a study looking at the environment and the health impacts of global diets. Um, this slide shows the reduced relative risk of these diseases with different diets. So if you see the larger lines means a, 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 more, a greater reduction. So you'll see the vegetarian diets and diet, type 2 diabetes, a greater reduction in type 2 diabetes. Also pescatarian, Mediterranean. So none, none of these are showing a vegan diet, but just the reduction. As, as more meat is reduced from the diet, the bigger impact on type 2 diabetes, cancer, coronary mortality, and all-cause mortality. Um, this, so in addition to health impacts, um, we've also heard a lot about this, but consuming more meat um, also impacts the way we grow and produce our food. The way much of our animal food is produced now requires intensive crowded conditions and disproportionate amounts of feed. Um, and to manage these operations, chemicals, antibiotics, and pesticides are used in large quantity and massive amounts of waste is produced. And then the practice of subtherapeutic doses of antibiotics, like our speakers um, already addressed, um, to prevent disease outbreaks, this has many consequences downstream. And this is just another picture showing um, that when antibiotics are, are, admitted or, are administered at very low doses, what happens is the susceptible bacteria are eliminated, but resistant bacteria survive. And then these resistant bacteria have plenty of substrate in which to grow and multiply. And so that is what um, stays with the animals. These resistant bacteria, along with other contaminants and gases and particulates, are present in the animals and the waste they produce. Research has demonstrated that bacteria from animal production sites leave, can leave through a variety of channels and can come into contact with people and cause infections. These bacteria can spread by insects and through manure. They can spread to farm workers who are also bearing the consequences of unhealthy work environments. And they can, um, and the resistant bacteria and other harmful pollution can impact fence line neighbors and residents of rural communities surrounding these farms. Um, climate change also affects public health. Many of these impacts are already apparent and, become, and are predicted to become much more severe. These include more frequent extreme weather events leading to decreased food and water security, increased heat mortality, and spread to vector-borne diseases. Um, we've seen this several times, but this just shows that red line is the, um, the red dotted line is the, is the um, two, two, less than two degrees Celsius uh, temperature rise that has been set by the climate um, climate negotiations in order to uh, reduce the uh, catastrophic effects of climate change by 2050. And you can see the green box on the left is agriculture emissions in 2010. The one on the right is agriculture emissions in 2050. And so you can see just emissions alone um, it leaves that tiny little space for all the industry, the transportation, and all the other, all the other uh, emissions. So you can see without changing what we eat, we cannot make, meet our climate goals. And, um, and that has an impact on our health as well. 
This is just quickly a study that we are doing at Center for Livable Future. It's a very busy slide, but we're looking at specific dietary impacts on, of, of, on greenhouse gas and water footprints, um, specifically by country. So there's 120 countries here. Um, the United States is way far to the left here. The red dots up there are the typical diet in that country, looking at imports and exports and the way food is grown. And then the dots lower are different diets that we've modeled, um, eating meat, not eating meat one day a week like meatless Monday, a vegan diet, which is the lowest, and all those in between. So depending on how food is grown, imports and exports, um, you can see the impact is different. So this will be a really um, great study that we're excited about publishing soon. Um, so lastly, just, um, you know, so, um, sorry, just one here. Um, in, in, in addition to community health and personal health, heavy reliance on animal proteins limits the amount of, health, of food available for a growing world. And we've seen this here, but you can see the globe there is as, as how many, the, the, the globes um, represent how many people that can be fed on a plant-based diet, the hamburgers, how many people can be fed on a 30% meat diet, and then the red line is the population growth. So you can see that we are, can't even meet um, the food, that, the, the growing amount of people we need to feed based on the way we're eating now. So in conclusion, um, shifting to a plant-based diet is very important for individual health, for community health, and health of our future generations. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. Uh, first, uh, give a round of applause to all the speakers. They, uh, They were all given the very tough task to uh, <laughs> condense uh, what would be a book's worth of information in five minutes on each um, uh, specialized topic, which I'm sure they could each talk for all day. Um, so I appreciate that, and everyone has, has managed to keep it at the time. So we have time for Q&A, which is great. Um, I'm going to get to some of the audience questions, but before that, uh, the first question I have, and I'm kind of opening this one up to anyone on the panel who wants to take it first. Uh, the first question is, why focus on meat reduction? Why focus on plant-based foods as a solution? If the problem is industrial animal agriculture and factory farming, which is this terrible system, why not turn our attention to smaller farmers who are growing crops and taking care of their soil, feeding their animals, grazing their animals, um, producing local sustainable meat, if you can call it that, that doesn't use antibiotics, that doesn't use monocultures, that I think the, the toughest question is the animal rights one, but maybe includes, as some say, mostly a good life for an animal with one bad day. Um, <laughs> Why not focus on that as a way to feed the world instead of this relentless push for plant-based foods and uh, meat reduction? Why don't just replace the bad meat with something better? I'll take it, because that's Great. a fairy tale. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We already discussed the grazing. It's still going to use land. You don't have enough land to do that and the land use issue is still there. So you're, to graze, you're still gonna have the, uh, the massive amount of greenhouse gases and then the climate change that's gonna occur from that is gonna basically wipe all of us out. How's that for quick? <laughs> Sharon? Yeah. 
So, of course, I come from an animal rights perspective, and we should really be asking ourselves the question, well, why are we morally entitled to take the life of an animal when we can perfectly live without, without killing or um, inflicting suffering and other sentient beings? But I think it's very important to have a pragmatic approach. Um, that's the approach we have at Animal Equality. And we consider that we want to meet people where they are. So any step towards veganism is a step in the right direction. And as Brian very well said, that is something that we need to celebrate. Um, it's not only the most strategic approach, because we know that people who take small steps are going to be more inclined to take bigger steps in the future, but it's also the reality of the society we live in. So, of course, I come from an animal rights background. Um, I think we should question our relation with animals, but at the same time, we need to be pragmatic. And I could just add the health. Um, it's better for you. And it tastes better too. So there's a lot of really delicious food um, around the world that are eaten, that um, are, are that it's made and um, prepared with with less meat, and we don't need as much meat. And we've seen over and over again that um, having a diet that's higher, more, higher in fiber, um, that includes more vegetables and plant proteins, um, leads to longer lives, um, healthier weights, um, and just and fewer chronic diseases as well. Darius? So just very quickly um, about the small farms. So a couple of very interesting statistics. 30% of all food produced in the world is produced on farms of less than two hectares in size. I'm talking about not just meat, but all, all agriculture. There are 500 million people engaged in agriculture at that scale. So it's, and in Sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia, it's 80% of all food for domestic consumption is produced by farmers operating at that scale. The irony is, this is what Nils mentioned in my introduction, something like 70% of people who live below the international dollar a day poverty line are those people. So they're also food insecure. So actually there is a lot we could do to support small farmers and they're primarily not producing meat, by the way, but they are being pushed off their land. They're being, you know, their, their livelihoods are being jeopardized in so many ways in favor of factory farming. Factory farming doesn't just happen in Texas. It happens in Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Argentina, Mali, Kenya, Nigeria. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So factory farming is actually happening at the expense of traditional livelihoods and it's happening below the radar all over Africa. We call that land grabbing. And just really quick to add to what Darius said, um, it's absolutely essential that we decrease our consumption. You know, per capita, Americans eat three times more meat than any other country in the world. Um, but also, as Darius said, we need to be looking at where meat consumption is really skyrocketing around the world in a lot of these developing countries like Brazil and India and China. And I think we, as I said, we absolutely need to decrease our own consumption, but because of this kind of leaky system effect where this model of factory farming, this great American model, has exploded upon the world and a lot of these developing countries are taking this U.S. model of factory farming. And as our consumption goes down in this country, we need to be really mindful that meat producers are going to still be producing meat 
and exporting it. So just, you know, I think to answer your question, yes, we need to tackle consumption, but we absolutely have to pay attention to the production st status quo and monitor where um, these factory farms are taking off around the world. No, can I just so, um, I'm, I'm going to test the proposition that, uh, that reducitarianism is, in fact, a big tent. Um, because I, think, I do think there's value in attempting to convert from bad meat to good meat, possibly on the way to, uh, to reducing all meat consumption. Uh, I live in Georgia, the home of chicken production in the United States. Georgia produces 1.4 billion chickens a year. If it were an independent country, it would be the fourth largest chicken economy on the planet. But it's also the home of the American pastured poultry movement, um, where in which people are attempting to raise old-style standard bred or slow-growth hybrid birds out on pasture without antibiotics, without artificial inputs, and that's growing, and it's, it's reducing antibiotic use that opens up the space for that. And the consumer demand that that has stimulated is turning some of the bigger companies, some of the biggest companies, toward um, relinquishing antibiotics, and once they relinquish antibiotics, they find that improving animal welfare is a necessary second step, because once you take the antibiotics away, you have to give them, the birds, more space. You have to give them different diets. You have to allow them to live longer. You have to change their genetics. And the best uh, example of this is Purdue, which is the fourth largest chicken um, company in the United States. So I, I would say that, that the, the question you're asking, do we go toward better meat, is an important part of this discussion, too. But you would have to reduce, you would have to reduce to even Try to get that. Can I make one point? Sure. Not no. to that, but just to, for people, if, if the numbers get a little bit confusing. So um, Neil mentioned that uh, China eats twice as much meat as the U.S. And Ashley mentioned that the U.S. eats three times more meat than any other country per capita. So, per capita right. Per so capita. that's that's what the difference is. Is that per capita the U.S. is like the number one. Um, consumer of, of meat per capita, but China has four times the population. So that's how that happens for anybody who might have got lost in those numbers. Thank you. Uh, so I guess my follow-up question was also connected to what Don pointed out first is, even if you do start to shift to smaller scale animal farming, would that would that, would that be able to produce meat at the rate to meet up with the increasing demand? And I guess the consensus seems to be no, and that we would still have to reduce consumption as the only way forward if you have some hope of feeding the world in 2050. I see nodding heads, I'm assuming it's a yes. Um, all right, so my, I'm, I'm gonna go, my next question again, I'm gonna open this one up um, to the panel. Um, if we're gonna be 9.7 billion people by 2050, how do you see the world's agricultural system then if we are able to feed the world. Like if, we, if the work we're doing right now heads in the direction we're all hoping it does, both from an industrial and a policy standpoint and of course from a consumer standpoint, what would the agricultural world look like in 2050? And I guess I'm gonna, the point I'm trying to get at here is, do we run the risk of shifting away from meat and then going to industrialized farming for the production of plant foods? And what's the right balance and what is that what is that picture? Paint me a picture of, we, of us feeding the world sustainably in 2050. 
Um, and I'll start with um, Ashley, if you want to go. Sure. Um, my two cents on that is, uh, well, first of all, what Don talked about, just how inefficient the system of commodity crops are um, to feed, you know, this huge amount of, of soy and corn is grown to feed cattle and livestock to feed a very small percentage of global population. It's an incredibly inefficient system. So I think we need to completely shut down factory farming globally. And if I were to look at 2050, obviously these are aspirational goals, but I think we would shut down factory farming and um, we would be eating plant-based. I think the innovations in the plant-based sector are so incredibly inspiring and, you know, new groups like uh, Good Food Institute and lots of other folks out there who are really um, revolutionizing the food system with plants. I think that's absolutely where our food system needs to go. Um, and we all need to be eating less meat. And then these big companies that are, you know, running factory farms, they need to, I don't know about shutting them down, if that's reasonable by 2015, but um, we need to make business as usual um, completely just inaffordable for these companies because um, it can't continue any longer. Thanks. Anyone else wants to add to that? Darius? So I'm trying to figure out how to talk about 2050 without sounding depressing. I think, um, so in my ideal world, we've internalized the costs of the food that we produce, and by that I mean the health and environmental costs, and those costs are internalized into the price. So in 2050, a cheeseburger costs $275, and a quinoa salad uh, from Whole Foods costs $1.25. Then we'll be okay. Okay. Um, Don, oh, wanna? Okay. Well, but on the industrial, so you were talking about like industrial uh, crop production that's not for animals. So we would still have to be mindful of that, but obviously it's going to take a lot of pressure off the system so there's more room so that we don't have to be as focused on industrial crop production like we do for the monocultures to feed livestock. But we would still have to be intentional about it. It's not just going to happen magically. Great. I mean, I guess the... And I'm also really nihilistic about it because I think climate change is going to take us out before... <laughs> I'm with you, Darius. I'll just, I'll just add, if, um, if, if we get this ideal world in 2050, it would be great to see, um, uh, to see values um, incorporated in how we grow food, so however that is, um, that we, um, we look at nutrients that we're growing, we look at variety um, rather than the monocultures, we look at the workers, um, their health, and we look at really supporting these family farms who are really trying to do things right. Yeah, I, I also yeah. wanted to add, um, so we're doing a lot of work in India, and what we find, uh, we're doing a lot of education work, um, and what we find uh, to be the most successful approach is to encourage people to not to start eating meat. Um, so what we're finding in India, and I suppose it's true for many other countries, is that it's important to people, for people to continue eating the foods they are already eating that are plant-based, that are healthy, that are environmental and animal-friendly. Okay. I think that's very important. Um, from a personal standpoint, I grew up in India, but I grew up eating meat, mm -hmm. um, and I gave up eating meat in the, in the United States, so that's <laughs> a, <laughs> I had to come here to learn about it. So. Um, all right, so I'm going to move to audience questions. We have some really interesting questions up on um, the slide over here. Uh, first up uh, for Darius. 
I think you made um, the question up there is you made a great point about how many people are hired by animal agriculture companies or the factory farming system. If we move away from that system, where will those jobs go? Good question. So, uh, two things. First is that um, our primary focus is to make sure that those jobs are less dangerous and better paid. So we're not actually, in this campaign, we're not assuming that jobs go away. We're assuming that people are treated, that their human rights and their dignity are respected. Um, there's, I was trained as an economist, which is a really grim field, because one of the things economists say is that in a healthy economy, you lose a million jobs every year, but you gain a million different jobs. And so I think about the coal industry. I seriously doubt there are many coal miners who are really excited to be coal miners for the rest of their lives and want their kids to be coal miners in Appalachia. There's nothing else going on. So a, a policy designed to save coal mining jobs is not actually doing anyone any favors. So the question is, what else is happening in the economy? What type of worker training programs? What kinds of services can we provide so that people can transition into the future and not be stuck in the past? And, we interviewed lots of poultry workers in the preparation of this campaign, and you know they would love to do something else. So I, it's gonna, it's if we're successful in in this reducitarian movement, there will be less of those jobs, but it's gonna be happen in a time scale of years, not not months. Thanks. Um, the next question, I'm gonna rephrase that a little bit. I think. So the question is really incentive, what incentives do leading meat companies have to change their factory farming methods? Uh, I guess the question really is, how, are, how is the meat industry, how are those big four meat producers and processors responding to this clear problem we're facing? They, haven't, they aren't doing things fast enough, but they aren't ignoring the problem. And I think there have been some recent examples with Tyson's investment in a company called Beyond Meat or Cargill, um, also shutting down some of their operations and talking about investing in alternative proteins. So I can answer that from sure. the antibiotic perspective. Um, we are where we are with uh, antibiotic re use reduction in the American meat industry simply because of consumer pressure. Um, uh, England and then the Scandinavian countries and then the European Union uh, went to a ban on growth promoters starting in about 1971 and completing it by 2006. We only had that in the United States since the beginning of this year. But what we've had in the United States for about eight years now is a profound and complex consumer movement putting pressure on companies to reduce antibiotic use, starting with uh, healthcare without harm, which um, it persuaded large medical centers, academic medical centers, and, and healthcare organizations to stop buying meat raised with the routine use of antibiotics, followed by the group School Food Focus, which convinced the largest school lunch organizations in the United States to turn away from uh, meat raised with routine use of antibiotics. And finally, um, things like Super Moms Against Superbugs, which is a, um, a, a, an a initiative of the Pew Charitable Trusts. All of that consumer pressure together meant that starting in about 2013, Purdue and then Tyson and then Cargill and McDonald's and Costco and Walmart and Subway and I think most recently KFC, who were the real holdouts, all relinquished or, pl or set plans to relinquish antibiotic use in poultry within the next couple of years. So consu and consumer pressure is what brought us there. Yeah, I would also add profit. Like, um, I was researching 
doing some research for, for the presentation, and um, I read that there's a 625 million uh, dollar, uh, pound market in the UK for plant-based products. So we live in a capitalist society. I think that shifting from one uh, meat product to a plant-based alternative is something that consumers are demanding increasingly around the world. So there's definitely a lot of room for uh, innovative companies to, to, to benefit from this. Yeah, I think that's a great point. If we can scale up uh, production of uh, plant-based foods and especially plant-based meats and alternative proteins and potentially even cellular agriculture in the next few years, it's not a question of, of whether they're going to get into the space they will kind of be forced to if they want to be competitive. Um, unfortunately, we were out of time, so I can't get to more questions. But um, to kind of ra wrap this up, I would... And I'm going to try to get Dawn to get a little bit more um, optimistic. So, <laughs> so I'm going to wrap this up with an optimistic statement rather than uh, the dystopian start that I did, um, that I started off with. I, I, I think there's hope. And, that's, and the clearest sign of that is that if, one, if you want one takeaway from this panel, the takeaway should be that uh, this is undoubtedly one of the biggest challenges we're facing on the planet today. And the fact that we're present here and you're participating um, tells us that there are people working on a solution. Now I know, and one of the questions even in this, uh, from the audience was, aren't we preaching to the converted? Perhaps, I'm sure there's a lot of, let a lot of you in here who, um, who agree that this is the right way to go and that's, that explains why not too many laughed about my bacon joke. <laughs> I don't take it personally, uh, but I think it's important that each one of you are armed with the right facts and we go out there and we're able to present them to those that don't know enough in a way that's less polarizing uh, and in a way that's more inclusive. Um, and at, at the end of the day, I think while at an individual level, we can't change government policies, we can't change Tyson and Cargill's business practices overnight, we, we do have the power to change our food choices. And I'll just end with that. You. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.